This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit AmericanVision.org to purchase this book or to read other articles. The Bounds of Love An Introduction to God's Law of Liberty by Dr. Joel McDermott Copyright 2016 Published by American Vision Incorporated Chapter 6 How Will It Come to Pass? Now that we have the beginnings of a vision of what a theonomic society would look like, we need to discuss how such a society will come to pass. This discussion is further necessary since the practical advent of theonomic society has often been mischaracterized through ignorance, careless assumption, and even malice. This discussion will immediately invoke debates over eschatology. I will not go into those in detail in this book. There are many who may believe that something like my description in the last chapter will come to pass, but only after Christ returns. I do not believe this. I believe Christ is currently ruling both heaven and earth, Matthew 28:18, from his heavenly throne, presiding over the great commission, and will not return until all of his enemies, including death, are first destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15:25-26 Hebrews 10, 12-13. But even many of those who believe that the success of this vision will occur only after Christ returns still feel the burden for obeying Christ's law here and now as much as possible. Even some premillennialists have contacted me saying they believe in fighting for the faith in every area of life now, and thus engaging in projects or activism to develop theonomic foundations for when Christ does return. This chapter will proceed upon the assumptions of my eschatology, but will also be helpful to those of all eschatological persuasions who nevertheless think we should work for social ethics which glorify God even in the meantime. When we are discussing the vision of what society would look like, we are speaking of the nature of social order. When we switch to the topic of how such a social order will come to pass, we are discussing the nature of social change. What are the biblical elements of social change? While this question deserves a treatise of its own, I will discuss in summary the basic two elements that make up the New Testament program of social change, the Great Commission and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit and the Great Commission Godly social change in the New Testament comes from the advance of the Great Commission given by Christ, and this succeeds only according to the work of the Holy Spirit. Both are dependent upon each other, and both are necessary. The Great Commission The foundational impetus for Christian evangelism is the command of Christ given after His resurrection and prior to His ascension. We rightfully call this the, quote, Great Commission. Unquote. And Jesus came and said to them, quote, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Unquote. Matthew 28, 18-20 First, there is a lot we can learn from this passage, but the most relevant aspect for our purposes is the full nature and scope of the mandate. 
According to Christ, disciple-making involves more than just, quote, soul-winning, unquote. It is about more than preaching about, quote, getting saved, unquote. We are to aim at more than that beginning part of Christ's message that saves the soul. Rather, we are to train the nations to, quote, observe, unquote, that is, quote, obey, unquote, all that Jesus has commanded us. This includes all of God's word, not just the portion that speaks of the souls of men, but also that vast majority which teaches the law and its application for living, rearing families, self-improvement, doing business, running governments, etc. For the abiding content of that law and its application, you can begin with the previous chapters of this book. But the relevant part here is the dire need to incorporate this content into our missionary activity. It is not anywhere near adequate, in light of Christ's words here, to make a handful of converts without consequently teaching them the law, its social applications, and training preachers to address the whole of their society with that full message. To do so may prompt one with our contemporary mindset to boast that converting the soul is what matters most, and that devoting the entirety of one's life, even to save a single soul, is, quote, worth it, unquote. But this is hardly faithful to Christ's vision and commandment, in the view of which it seems quite timid, wasteful, and disobedient, much like the sad figure who buried his talent and was reprimanded by his Lord for doing so. Matthew 25, 14-30. This is especially applicable when we collect millions of dollars to send our missionaries who live in disproportionately comfortable social conditions compared to the tribes they attempt to reach, and after a couple of decades claim only a handful of souls as converts. Instead, all of our missionary activity ought to address the full scope of Christ's commandments, all of His law, and it should teach and train others to do so as well. Matthew 5:19. Secondly, while this commission may often proceed by addressing individuals, its goal is to change entire nations. The text does not say, quote, make disciples from among or within or out of the nations, unquote. The Greek literally translates as an imperative command to, quote, disciple all the nations, unquote themselves. The outlook of the Great Commission, therefore, is not individuals but corporate bodies and all of them. Certainly, as we said, we must proceed toward this goal by saving individuals, but the end goal is corporate, national, and universal. The greatness of the Great Commission does not lie in what it commands, but in what it promises. Christians should focus on the scope of what it promises and engage in missions accordingly. By the Holy Spirit. We must also emphasize that any degree of theonomic society will only come to pass to the degree that the Holy Spirit has worked among a significant portion of that people. This is multiple facets as well. First, the dynamic power behind any Christian social change is the Holy Spirit, not man. When we speak of obedience to God's laws in real-time history, we are speaking of our sanctification. We are speaking of the degree to which our desires and actions accord with God's standards, 
especially as compared with the former times of our ignorance or unbelief, in which we not only did not obey God, but did not care. The difference in attitude, will, and action is the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches that, quote, No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Likewise, Paul teaches, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. 1 Corinthians 2, 14-15 Thus Scripture teaches that the Spirit is the power behind our faith, confession, understanding, and acceptance of things of God. But it goes beyond that. We mentioned earlier that a key difference between the Old and New Covenants is that the New Covenant is a ministry of the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3. In it, God writes His law upon our hearts, not stone, Hebrews 8, 10. We are filled with His Spirit and empowered to mortify our flesh, Romans eight thirteen, and to obey Him. Thus our new patterns of behavior and thoughts are not said to be the fruit of our own power, but the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians five twenty two through 25 Paul says that our change from our old sinful selves is due to the sanctification by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians six eleven. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 He says that the work of his own ministry was by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15.16 Indeed, the full scope of Christ's work is to bring the nations to obedience in word and deed through sanctification of the Spirit. Romans 15.14-19 He specifies that walking by the Spirit means not only sanctification, but sanctification according to the righteousness of the law. Romans 8, 4. The law is thus our pattern of sanctification. Peter adds that God's election of us is worked out, quote, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, unquote. 1 Peter 1, 2. Thus you see all aspects clearly, that sanctification is by the Spirit, that it leads to obedience, that this obedience is specifically according to the law, and that it is for the nations. We must acknowledge, therefore, that it is the Holy Spirit that does the work, and we hold this idea as central to a theonomic society. This seems basic enough so as not to need emphasis. A variety of critics, however, and some would-be proponents of theonomy perpetuate the idea that we want to first seize the seats of power and impose God's laws upon everyone from the top down. Others repeat an old, slanderous, and well-refuted idea that we desire to, quote, bring in the kingdom of God by the works of man, unquote. Adding theonomy to postmillennialism just makes that much more scary, even drawing comparisons to the Taliban. Of course, none of this is even remotely close to the truth, and those who perpetuate such myths about their Christian brothers quite simply ought to be ashamed of themselves for spreading lies. 
In truth, as we have seen, theonomy entails a drastic reduction in the size and scope of civil government. It seeks to remove great swathes of government power, along with the cords of finance by which larger governments first buy the compliance of, then bind lesser local governments, and tyrannize the whole uniformly. Most importantly, however, theonomists have always stressed that a biblical society can only come to pass in the wake of revival. In other words, it can only be a work of the Spirit, and anything that is not a work of the Spirit is not only pointless, it could be dangerous. Social change means social sanctification, and sanctification cannot come from the works of man. When man attempts to work apart from the Spirit, the results will never be praiseworthy and will not result in freedom. Second, however, we must also acknowledge that when the Holy Spirit works, He works through people. This is not at all to take away with the other hand what we have already put down with the first. But the Holy Spirit works by inspiring, enlightening, and empowering people to good works. This means that the evidence of the work of the Spirit will manifest in the improved and obedient works of men. Consider an analogy that will befit other views of the end times, the spread of the gospel via the Great Commission. Let us assume the role of someone who believes the chief, yea, and only purpose of the commission is to preach salvation and save souls. We should not waste our time doing anything else. This person would scoff at the idea that a theonomic society could occur before the second coming of Christ. This person may repeat the caricature about us trying to bring in the kingdom by our own works. Such a person, however, does not see the inconsistency in their objection. Human involvement is not the same as human origin. Works that come through man are not the same as works that come from man. Such Christians themselves, after all, believe in human involvement in preaching the salvation of souls. They believe Christ and the Spirit are doing the work of the gospel, even though the actual presence, preaching, interaction, prayer, etc. are being done by men. Does this mean that even these pious savers of souls are guilty of spreading the kingdom by the works of men? Of course not. But in order to be consistent with their own view, they must acknowledge that those who believe in more concrete manifestations of the kingdom of God believe nothing different in regard to the source of the works than they themselves do about spreading the gospel. It will necessarily involve the efforts of men, but that is a whole different thing than saying it comes from the works of men. No, Christian reconstruction toward a theonomic society will come only by the work of the Holy Spirit, but it will cause and thus involve a wide variety of human works. These works will just happen to be spirit-driven works, and He will deserve all the glory. Third, for the change to be truly social, the Spirit's influence must reach a significant portion of a people. Whether this is a majority or not is up for debate in any given system or society, I suppose, but we surely must expect a substantial amount of shared vision, shared goals, and shared values for there to be any meaningful social change. If outward changes are wrought by the influence of some charismatic leader, 
at an opportunistic moment, it will probably not last. Social cohesion comes about by shared values. Without this, change will not have roots and will wither and die. We do not need charismatic personalities so much as we need a more widespread educational revival among Christians to affect faithfulness in service and action. The idea that we will just elect the right person to the presidency and then impose a new system of government is not only naive and ignorant, it has never been accurate in regard to theonomy. Theonomic ethics calls for widespread self-government and decentralization. It is not only incompatible with dictators, but to embrace central planning or centralized government is to depart from theonomy by definition. We need not, however, think of our work as hopeless until such a widespread revival comes to pass. It has usually been true in history that powerful social changes are spearheaded by only a small group of the hardcore. While it would be a departure from biblical law to consider some top-down centralized imposition of social change, it is nevertheless only through the courageous activism of small groups and even individuals that the message is brought to bear upon whole societies that need to hear it. It is only through such small but devout minorities that the first foundations of social change are laid. Think of William Wilberforce. He worked almost single-handedly in Parliament and with a very small group outside to bring about the abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire. He labored fearlessly and tirelessly for over 20 years, starting as the voice of a tiny minority and subject to constant ridicule. He ended with a majority vote in Parliament. The advance of his cause and activism could be called nothing less than theonomy in action, though he would never have heard the term and may have not accepted it in theory. But it was. There was no way it would have come about top-down. He could not have seized the reins of power if he had wanted to, and if he had, he would have been opposed widely, bringing about civil unrest, if not revolution or civil war. But his minority status did not dissuade him from working for the cause, working for reform. We should consider Wilberforce a prime example of how theonomic minorities ought to view their work today. We should engage in activism for reform because it is right and because even up against such pervasive opposition, we can begin to lay the foundations of necessary change, if not see it come to pass in our lifetimes. We should step up and become modern-day Wilberforces in regard to justice reform, prison reform, police reform, legal reform, monetary and banking reform, transformation of education, welfare, military, free markets, and much more. Even if we think any broad revival is way off, we must still work for change in laying the foundations in order to be faithful to God's calling. And the surprise may just be on us. Who knows what God intends to do through us as we preach and work His law in society? Fourth, the goal of social change means real, concrete changes in societies and real, concrete service and activism on the part of the people. We must emphasize, therefore, that the Spirit working through people means the Spirit empowering and motivating people actually to works. As we have seen, those works will be according to the law. Romans 8, 4 Too often, even those who adhere to a biblical law worldview do little but talk and write books. 
Such educational efforts are, of course, a part of how such a society will come to pass. We need awareness and instruction. We need information. But we also need action. When we speak of obedience and obedience according to the law, we are necessarily talking about changes in behavior. Changes in behavior will mean changes in how we live, speak, work, spend money, associate with others, vote or not to vote, and much more. In terms of social change, it means changes in how the state, not to mention families, churches, corporations, institutions, etc., behaves. Our activism ought to have very specific ideas of what these changes would entail and then how to work for them in the meantime, if possible. When we talk about the Spirit's role in how a theonomic society will come to pass, therefore, we must consider all aspects. First, the theological source of change being the Holy Spirit. Second, the practical involvement of people. Third, the fact that we need a critical mass of converts, yet we work for certain changes in the meantime. Fourth, we have concrete goals toward which we work and concrete methods of working. In all such work, we trust that God will bring His will to pass and that what does come to pass will be only by His blessing. Action Plans While we have established that the Great Commission is greater than most Christians have been taught, and we have emphasized the absolute necessity for the Holy Spirit's power in any theonomic advance, we have also stressed that people will be involved and that they will be involved in specific works. From reading our vision in the last chapter, you can probably gather what some of those works may be. But since we are in the beginning stages of transition, it is good to review what kinds of practical works we can do as priorities. The following discussion of practical reforms is taken from the introduction to my book, Restoring America One County at a Time. Perhaps the first and foremost area of action needs to be, and can be, in the area of education. We are not just talking about educating yourself, we are talking about your children too. Education in a free society can only be private, never government-run at any level. Government schools are at the heart of the problem of government-dominated society. Tax-funded schools cannot be an option if we are to have a free society. This is one area in which you can exercise almost complete control already now. Regaining liberty here requires no change in existing laws, only one's lifestyle. Most Christians could implement these changes tomorrow, if not over a few months. It is only a test of desire. Do we really want a free society, or do we depend on tax-funded benefits like the liberals and socialists we criticize? This change should be a priority number one, and since it requires so little change on the political and social level, we only need to change ourselves. If we can't accomplish change in this one area, then forget the rest. Nothing about truly restoring America will be easier or more readily obtainable than taking free control over your family's education. Second, we need wholesale reform of all welfare services. This means we need to learn about options for securing our own financial futures, privately, while we opt out of Social Security over time. Welfare of all forms should be a privately funded and privately insured affair not supported through taxation, redistribution, and subsidy. Family and charity can replace the welfare state, but we must learn to refuse the benefits promised by government agencies. 
Paul directly commands local churches to install private welfare programs to support needy members. 1 Timothy 5. It is time to take up this call. Private Christian alternatives to Obamacare already exist. For example, Samaritan Ministries. Private Christian alternatives to Social Security and Medicare, see examples among the Amish, already exist. There is no reason we cannot take advantage of programs that already exist and organize to create others in other areas. There is no reason we cannot gain immediate headway here as well. Third, the real practical solution to big government intrusion in our lives is a return to localism. This involves returning government and community to a more grassroots level where it ought to be. Christians must develop a truly local vision confronting local waste and corruption, focusing on smaller, practical things we can impact now, and learning to break local institutions free from the unnecessary bonds of state and federal government tyranny. This means exposing the areas where the sovereignty of local communities is compromised by receiving federal and state funds for perceived benefits. We should learn about, monitor, and interact with local authorities and network with other local Christians to spread a biblical understanding. Fourth, Christians should understand the nature of state-level activism as well. This means in part discussing the roles of nullification and interposition of the lesser magistrates. There is a tremendous opportunity for Christians to have impact on several issues at the state level. We can organize to call state officials to resist federal intrusions of many sorts, and we can influence state officials to be more faithful to biblical laws on certain issues within the state. Abortion, arms, spending, free markets, and more. Fifth, we can begin to work in a variety of ways for tax reform. On the way towards total elimination, taxation of individuals and businesses must be returned exclusively to the local level. State taxation, if any, should only be upon counties, and federal taxation, if any, should only come from states. Christians should never see a tax they approve of, and should always lead opposition to any and all taxation. Of course, this means they should always also lead the discussion for the replacement of tax-funded programs with private and charitable services. Pick one, join forces, get counsel, get busy, and lead the way. We spoke earlier about the sanctity of private property and the enforcement of contracts. We certainly need less government coercion and money manipulation. We need to end monetary inflation legal tender laws, the business cycle, government corporatism, and more. But Christians could have a serious impact if they would simply get more involved in business, local, regional, and even big business. For some Christians, theonomic reconstruction will not mean radical activism or outspoken advocacy. It will simply mean taking your interest, knowledge, and skills and starting a business to serve your community and be a light of God's law in action. Godly action is at the heart of Christian reconstruction, and service is at the heart of godly action. One of the greatest areas of need is in judicial and police reform, the justice system itself. Without rehearsing the litany of ills and abuses in these areas, the remedy to recover freedom is the decentralization of courts, localized and separate jurisdictions, and private courts, perhaps especially 
all with only local law enforcement by mainly deputized volunteers and strict accountability. Paul directly instructs Christians to settle their disputes among each other in private courts, not ecclesiastical courts necessarily, but private Christian mediation and arbitration, 1 Corinthians 6, 1-8. Such measures and organizations for them already exist, but they are little known and less adhered to. We also have a dire need for transparency and accountability among police officers, prosecutors, and judges of both the establishment and liberal activist varieties. Just a law imitating the biblical laws against malicious witnesses would go a long way in this need for accountability. We need tremendous work to be done in spreading awareness about jury nullification and the unfortunate right of judges and prosecutors to lie about it, a right they readily and frequently exercise. There is a gargantuan amount of work to do in this area, and there is also a large amount of it that can be initiated through awareness and education already. Another of the most important areas, and perhaps that in which Christians are most deceived, is in regard to our military. We must support and demand a decentralized defense system instead of the national standing army and empire we have allowed, and even promoted for over a century. We need to take seriously the biblical rules for military and warfare. Patriotism does not mean militarism. Patriotism does not mean empire. Being patriotic and conservative does not mean always supporting everything the military does. Anti-war is not anti-American. We should be aware how our military was originally decentralized and strictly defense-oriented and how it was transformed incrementally to become a powerful centralized force designed to serve the interest of a central government in prolonged international conflicts. There is a great deal of education and awareness that can be spread here already. We should educate and motivate ourselves about biblical views of militia, defense, and the right to bear arms. We should also train ourselves in these areas as well. In reality, you can take any single aspect of the Theonomic Society outlined in the last chapter or the law itself and concentrate on it as a project for reform. This may or may not involve change in the civil realm, but it will almost certainly involve social change in a more general scope, family, church, corporation, or state. Whatever it may be, pick something and become the person who thinks it through in a detailed fashion. Master it. Then become the person who networks with others interested in that issue and begin to plan and fashion agendas for change. You may be surprised how many people you inspire and recruit. Conclusion The key lessons we have learned in this chapter are that Christian social change will only be brought by the power of the Holy Spirit and that this power is exercised through people in concrete but decentralized ways. Christians should not seek the reins of power, but nevertheless work in every area of life wherever they may be called and gifted to bring about awareness, education, change, and reform. We must get busy, however, and work to influence such changes where we can. How will a theonomic society come to pass? It will come to pass by the Spirit working through people who stand boldly for truth and justice. It will come to pass as the message influences the hard core of the faithful to lay the foundations of godly freedom in every area of life. It will come to pass as the Holy Spirit brings revival 
and people seek biblical solutions to the ills of every area of life. It will come to pass when Christians take the Great Commission seriously and the Holy Spirit blesses that effort. In the meantime, we fight to bring faithfulness among Christians wherever they are at already and in what limited spheres are available. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.